the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside my guest co-host today, Steve Coble. my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Steve is the pastor of teaching discipleship and spiritual formation at Renewal Church of Chicago. You can learn more about Steve and his church at RenewalChicago.com. I wanted to start in a spot where uh, I, we don't normally start, but you're kind of a guest. And I mean, you've been on the show half a dozen times now, but uh, you're still kind of a guest. And so here's what I, if you're open to it, I would love to just hear your story. I would love to hear your story. You've touched on it in the last couple of days, but uh, kind of when did you come to Christ? Like what led to that? What led to you becoming a pastor and being where you're at right now? So uh, I'd love to just hear your story. I might interject at some points and ask you some questions, but why don't we start there so people get to know you? We can kind of go on with the show. Steve Coble, tell us your story a little bit. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and we were nominally Catholic. So I was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, and I went to Catholic elementary school. And as a part of that like Catholic experience, you had to go to uh, some kind of mass through the week. And so I got exposed to Jesus and the cross and uh, the Holy Spirit, all, you know, all of those kind of foundational Christian things. And uh, my father ended up passing away when I was little. My my mm-hmm. grandmother passed away not long after that. And my mom's brother passed away all in like this span of six years. So it was wow. a really, really difficult time for my mom and for my family. And kind of in the process of that, my grandfather kind of shifted away from the Catholic Church altogether and started going to a Methodist church. And my mom just kind of fell uh, fell off the the map spiritually and um, and just wasn't really interested in anything that had to do with uh, with church. And then um, kind of in the process of, of growing up, I, I just was asking some of those foundational questions. Uh, about like what's the meaning of life what's the what's the purpose of of life all of those kinds of things and i i felt like i came to the conclusion that like man i i was like really belaboring this thought uh my first semester of college and i i think i had a great game i struck out 10 uh i was a pitcher in mm-hmm. in junior college baseball struck out 10 guys through a complete game and was like man this feels good but i got to go out there and do it again and then i got to do it again and do it again it's just felt like so elusive. And then when I was, uh, you know, later on became a believer and, and was reading Ecclesiastes and Solomon talks about a chasing after the wind. Yes. And I was like, that's it. That's what I was feeling. Um, and so then in the, in the process of that, I was, uh, went to visit one of my good childhood friends who I now pastor with, um, at, at college. So he, he and my other childhood friend were at Indiana university and we were just talking about life and talking about, um, you know, how do you how do you deal with the punches? And I remember my friend uh, was dealing with his parents divorce and he was just having a really hard time with it. 
And he turned to me and was just like, man, how, how have you, you know, gone through difficult things in life? Like, how do you get over some of this stuff? Um, knowing that all of those people had passed away in my family. And I, I think I just told him like, he just got to roll with the punches, like, because mm-hmm. that was the thing to say. And then I, I realized like at a soul level, like I, I actually don't want to do that anymore. Mm. Um, and so my friend Derek just shared how he had come to faith in Jesus. Uh, his girlfriend and now wife uh, had brought him to some uh, Campus Crusade for Christ and student venture uh, kind of retreats. And, and he had become a follower of Jesus. And he just shared how his life had been changed and things were different and basically said, like, you know, you remember he was nominally ca- raised nominally Catholic as well. He's like, you remember all that stuff about uh, Jesus in the cross and all of that stuff. Like, what if that wasn't just a part of your life, but it was a part of everything in your life? And I just remember thinking, like, I just I need to hear more about about that. And so he invited me to an impact conference, which is like the crew uh, arm of uh, the African-American uh, arm of crew. Uh, and it was kind of there where I met the guy who would eventually disciple me. Um, and he just opened up the Bible to John chapter three and said, you must be born again. And was like, what do you think that means? Hmm. And then over the course of that little short regional conference, I, I came to faith in Christ and was very interested very early on. I I, I tell my wife and it, it's a unique experience. And when you get to pastor, like you realize, like not a lot of people have that experience. Yeah. But it was like Neo being pulled out of the matrix. And I just felt like everything made sense and everything like I was stuck in in a matrix and uh, and now I was brought back out to reality. And uh, in the process of that, I just was really passionate about learning stuff about scripture and about God and about the Bible. And one of my friends, uh, the guy who was discipling me, the guy who asked me that question about John chapter three, um, he was like, man, you ever thought about going to Bible college? (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, I, I, don't, I don't even know that exists. <laughs> and so eventually, you know, I'm just kind of meandering because my baseball career is over. Um, I'm thinking about what I want to do for a career, all of those kinds of things. I my my idea was like, I guess I'll be a social studies high school social studies teacher and and I'll uh, coach baseball or football. And uh, then he was like, man, what if what if you went to to Bible college and like you just studied the the, the Bible and theology and, and evangelism and stuff like that. And I just was like, man, that sounds amazing. I've never mm-hmm. been excited about school. Like I literally only did school so that I could be eligible to play sports. And, and so I, I, I did it. I went and I flourished and, and grew and uh, was forced to preach my first sermon there. And, <laughs> and people said, man, you, I think you should keep doing that. And, just over the process of, of time, got introduced to Brian Loritz. My same friend Derek introduced me to him, and um, and he kind of helped shape and craft a a pathway for pastoral ministry and preaching. And um, just in that in that process, it just became incredibly clear: like this is this is the only thing that I want to do. And so that that's what I'm going to pursue. That's an awesome story, man. I forgot also the the baseball career. And uh, and now you got a wife. Now you got a baby. You're working at a church with your buddy. Who could have thought, right? <laughs> All those years ago. Uh, I'm sure you guys sit back and laugh about that. Thanks for sharing, man. I know I've heard your story before, but I, it's such an encouragement. I want people to hear because 
you know, that, that we all have these journeys we've been on, mm-hmm. including people out there listening. We're all on these journeys of, of faith and, and God is at work in our lives. Uh, and so I wanted you to hear that story. Well, we're off and running today. Glad that Steve is with me. Coming up next, Steve and I are going to be joined by Jeremy Linneman. He is a lead pastor of Trinity Community Church in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, he also has recently written an article that we want to talk to him about at the Gospel Coalition called How COVID Has Affected Our Friendships and What to Do About It. We're going to talk to Jeremy next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life alongside Steve Koble. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And uh, something we talk about a lot here on the show, Steve and I and Aubrey, when she's here, we're all pastors. Uh, and so our, our show kind of has that feel. We love the church and we love the, the people who make up the church and we want it to be as strong as possible. And so I was over at the Gospel Coalition website the other day and saw this article, How COVID Has Affected Our Friendships and what to do about it. COVID has really turned life upside down for all of us, for many of us in the church, outside of the church, and we're all trying to navigate this new reality. Uh, And so we thought it would be well worth our time to have the author of that article join us. He is the lead pastor of Trinity Community Church in Columbia, Missouri. His name is Jeremy Linneman. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, we love, we, we're really glad to have you on. And as I said, and in introducing you, this article feels so important. It feels uh, so important. So uh, let's just go kind of big picture. Why did you decide to write the article? And, and really, what is the problem you're trying to solve here? Yeah, this uh, this is really like part three of a series of articles mm-hmm. uh, that I've done for Gospel Coalition. And the first two were all the way back in 2018 and 19. When I was trying to think through uh, what's been called the epidemic of loneliness. Mm. Uh, So the first article is about that. The second one was on belonging. And I wanted to write kind of a follow up piece, uh, you know, in the middle of COVID, late COVID is kind of what I'm calling this. We're definitely not post COVID. um, But how has COVID affected our relationships inside and outside the church? And so the more I kind of did some research and, and thought about my own life in church, the more I, I realized this has really affected our friendships, our, our what sociologists call middle ring relationships. And so that's uh, that's what I'm trying to explore. And I'm, and I'm hoping that that this article, uh, along with, you know, with a lot of others that are doing great work, uh, will help the church have some some ways of thinking about loneliness, ways of thinking about how we've experienced the last two years and then how we could rebuild together. Jeremy, just speaking on that middle, middle ring friendships, can you uh, kind of define that for us? And then I, I noticed that mm-hmm. just the amount of, uh, you know, looking at the amount of screen time that's up, the amount of uh, the, the less amount of uh, relational time spent with other people, like how does that lack of the middle ring friendship affect our loneliness specifically? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the middle ring relationship, you can think of it in in terms of three sets of relationships. Your inner ring relationships would be your spouse and your children or your roommates, uh, the closest people to you, maybe three to eight people in your life. And for the most part, those relationships were not affected by COVID because you're inside the same four walls with them. And then you have outer ring relationships, which would be uh, people you 
you know, you see occasionally coworkers you might cross paths with, uh, once a week, but, but they're not, you know, life changing relationships, but in the middle are your friendships, um, daily interactions with coworkers, you know, on a, on a really regular basis, your, your next door neighbors that you see, uh, and other, you know, your church members, people you, you see every Sunday and are in small group with that sort of thing. And those were the relationships that were most uh, damaged and affected uh, by COVID. Uh, and so one of the things I saw in, in the research was that, especially in 2021 or in 2020, but I assume it's true for 21 as well, is that the average person spent an hour a day less in those middle ring relationships and an hour a day more uh, on social media, watching wow. TV and other forms of screen time. So if you project that over two years almost, we're talking about 700 hours that would have gone to relationships and community that instead were spent alone, you know, looking at a screen. Yeah. Uh, and Jeremy, uh, we've heard from some people, especially the people who like, you know, I'm an introvert, I'm this or that. And they go, I, I don't know that this is that big a deal. I've kind of enjoyed the slower pace or the lack of people. Mm -hmm. Help people understand, even for the introverts out there, that uh, that this lack of human connection, this middle ring you're talking about is really detrimental to us. That's right. Yeah. And I, I consider myself an introvert. Uh, I think for the first few weeks, um, you know, it, there was something there that was like, I meet with people all day long and it was kind of nice to get a break from that. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got three little boys and so they're always running around the house and they were doing, you know, school from home and all that. Um, but I think even in my own life, I started to see after a few weeks, like I, I am meant to be around people. I was designed and created for relationships and not just my wife and kids, mm -hmm. um, but for friendships and for, uh, you know, belonging to a community. And so I think a lot of us introverts, uh, we've, we've felt it in different ways than extroverts have. Uh, but I think it affects us just as much because we, we still desire to go really deep with people. Uh, and that's been that's been severed in a lot of ways. Jeremy, what are some things that we can do, practically speaking, in terms of recouping or rebuilding those opportunities for those relationships? You know, oftentimes as pastors, we talk about getting around a dinner table. But what are some of those other things that uh, that we can do practically? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that I, I kind of mentioned in the article is just, you know, show up you know, as, as, as much as you can. And I, and I totally understand things are still completely spreading right now. So do it as safely as possible. But if you think about us losing 600 or 700, you know, hours of community time, what does it look like to rebuild that over the next year or two? It's not going to happen overnight, yeah. but what are the rhythms of life that we can re-embrace, um, which would include church life, small group, serving, uh, as well as rebuilding relationships outside your normal kind of social group and tribe. Uh, I think it just takes showing up, being patient, recognizing it's going to take years, not weeks, uh, and just continue to be hospitable and, and show up relationally. Uh, Jeremy, this what I'm going to ask wasn't necessarily the point of the article, but you mentioned it, that not only have we lost face-to-face -face time, but we have increased our screen time, uh, right. social media, you know, Netflix, whatever else it might be, particularly around social media. Cause people, people could be going, well, that's where my friends are now. They're, they're, you know, they're my Facebook friends or whatever. Help, help people understand not only the, the danger of this increase in screen time, but why it's important to put some boundaries around it. 
That's right. Well, the the relationships themselves, uh, I would say, probably trend less healthy when they're online because you're probably connecting with people that completely share your you know ethnic background, your religious beliefs, and, and you, importantly, your political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so, there's an author that's called these faction friendships, where you're actually you're connected by you know these especially political and social views in a way that you're no longer. Ex- uh, experiencing the community at large, you're you're experiencing a very narrow slice of it, uh, and it's and it's non-local. So there's not the same accountability. There's not the same dialogue, um, and it can become unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all social media relationships are that way, of course, but social media tends to cultivate those types of relationships because it's just not a place for real dialogue. Jeremy, just thinking that we just uh, we're talking about churches that are shifting completely to online um, mm-hmm. and just discussing the importance of community. Can you cultivate community uh, online, stuff like that? Um, wh- what is What are your thoughts on uh, in-person worship? Is it drastically important? Is it, uh, is it something that we need to, to get back to? I'm in Chicago, like city center Chicago. So it's not like, you know, I got to show my vaccination card to get to the gym. Uh, so it's a bit distinct and different than where my, my in-laws live in Northwest Indiana and they've been, they never stopped going to church. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, this is the pandemic has certainly challenged me. I'm, I'm a hundred percent an in-person, you know, gathering kind of guy. And, and we at least gave our members the opportunity to continue gather as long as it wasn't breaking kind of local recommendations. Um, and then when we couldn't meet uh, in person, we actually met over zoom rather than just putting up a, uh, you know, a service on Facebook or on the website. And, and some of that's because we were around 80 to 100 people at the time and we could do that. Um, but I'm just such a big believer in the fact that we are, you know, we are embodied beings. We're meant to be physically present to one another. It's really difficult to do that now. But I don't think just just projecting a a service online uh, is the essence of what Jesus you know meant by church, what the early church was trying to to cultivate. Uh, so I I know it's unbelievably hard in places like you know uh, city center Chicago, mm-hmm. um, but I think as much as we can fight to keep those face to face interactions alive, we should. Yeah, such an important article for such a time as this, how Mm. COVID has affected our friendships and what to do about it. You can find that article up at the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, And the author of it, that article is the lead pastor of Trinity Community Church in Columbia, Missouri, Jeremy Lineman. Jeremy, this is wonderful, man. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate this. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. And Steve, uh, you and I are both pastors and just, you know, looking at the landscape of our culture, of our churches, of everything, there is just, we feel more polarized than we've ever felt before, uh, at least in my lifetime. We feel more fractured. We feel more uh, along political lines, socioeconomic lines, racial lines, whatever else it might be, uh, things just feel fractured. And um, the question is, what's the solution to that? Or what is one of the solutions to that? And there was a fascinating 
report on 60 Minutes recently about bridging America's political divides with conversations uh, just one step at a time. I want you to hear just a little bit of that report. Around the time of the 2016 presidential election, Dave Isay says he got the idea for a new kind of story corps that could perhaps help unite a country becoming increasingly divided. He decided to call it One Small Step. What's the difference between regular story corps and One Small Step? So every regular story corps interview are people who know and love each other. And every One Small Step interview are strangers. Uh, and in the case of One Small Step, it's people who are across the political divide. So after you read each other's bios, I'm going to ask, why did you want to do the interview mm. today? So we match strangers who um, disagree politically to put them face-to-face for 50 minutes. It's not to talk about politics. It's just to talk about your lives. Facilitators begin by asking the participants to read one another's biography out loud, as in this recent session in Richmond, Virginia. The project tries to match people who may be from different political parties but have something else in common. You know, I think what makes One Small Step special is that all of us believe in every cell of our body that there is a flame of good in you, whether you're liberal or whether you're conservative. And our job is to fan that flame until it becomes a roaring fire. All right, Steve. So uh, what the, what this is kind of uh, positing, what it's kind of putting out there is uh, conversations and getting to know one another, humanizing one another, having conversations across generational lines, political lines, racial lines, that that uh, and, and kind of humanizing each other is the key to breaking down political division and com- this fracturing that we feel in our culture. I, I think that this is brilliant and really onto something. What about this simple step of conversations uh, and uh, humanizing of one another being what can bring us together? Man, I, I, I know this to be true in my own uh, family's life. You know, my wife, uh, she comes from uh, a family of, of farmers in, in Northwest Indiana. And some of the things, the, the pre kind of conceived notions of people um, that I brought into our relationship is just mm-hmm. like, man, now, now I'm just, no, like they're, they're people. Um, they're and not just people, they're wonderful people that have stories and, and wonderful people who have, um, have trauma and pain and, um, and and I love them, you know, mm. and, and so uh, even though they, you know, on paper, it'd be like, man, this is very different than uh, where I come from or even what I would have would have thought that they would have been like. It's it just not it doesn't match up. It doesn't line yeah. up. And and I had the tendency to think that, man, that's probably pretty true across the board um, socially in, in American society. Yeah. And so what makes this difficult? Like, what, I think we're all always asking uh, why is everything so fractured? Why is culture this way? Uh, and, and there's lots of answers. We get into our echo chambers. We bubble off. We only talk to people like us who believe what we believe and these kinds of things. What do you think? Cause it sounds like a simple step. Like, Hey, Steve, what can we do? I don't know. Talk to each other. Get to know of other people. Take, take the time to invest in someone else's life. Why do you think that while simple, this is somewhat revolutionary and actually pretty difficult? Well, I mean, it, I think it goes back to um, Jeremy's article with the the Gospel Coalition and, and mm-hmm. this guy David French um, 
talking about how in in the midst of the pandemic, we've created um, relationships that are pseudo relationships based on factions. And so um, and then when we call people out of those things, we're calling them out of their community. Uh, when when we're we're telling them that no, that's a conspiracy theory, or that's that's a you're you're valuing your political identity over your identity in Christ, or you know some of those things is that they've created a, a community around those things, mm. and so I I think that 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 perpetuates itself, and then it just gets more deeply ingrained, and then uh, and then you know you have conversations like like I have with uh my in-laws and, and other uh people who are a part of that community and realize like wait a second we're not believing the best about one another and that's a problem yeah yeah so what can we as churches do like how can we as churches uh foster this type of thing because we can't just point fingers at the political divide or this our churches are divided in many ways our churches are fractured and so you and i are both pastors what can we do to encourage um, church, our churches to be places where people are reaching across the political divide, the racial divide, the socioeconomic divide, or whatever else is, so that we look different even than the culture around us. Yeah, I, I think it's pressing into those things. I think those those places of of uh, uncomfortability are uh, are the things that we're called to press into. You know, when you look at what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter five, "Blessed are the peacemakers." Um, there, there is a sense in which a peacemaker is not somebody who, uh, who sweeps stuff under the rug, um, and is not somebody who, um, who acts like issues aren't there. A peacemaker is somebody who steps in and makes something whole. Mm. Um, and so there's work that, that, that takes place in being a peacemaker. There's, there's, uh, there's navigating awkwardness and navigating conflict that takes place in being a peacemaker. And uh, I just think that as followers of Jesus, we've got to be people who are willing to navigate those waters in a time when people don't don't want to navigate those waters in a time when people want to just be angry with one another. We need to be compassionate and charitable. Um, and that needs to be our, our posture and our, our attitude. You know, even going back to our article from uh, earlier uh, yesterday, it, it was, you know, what would Jesus do? Uh, how would Jesus have this conversation? I think that's helpful. Yeah, the the organization, this one small step was started by the founder of StoryCorps. I would encourage you to Google it and check it out. But really, uh, we as the church, as Christ followers, we have a, a really wide open door in our culture right now to model what unity looks like, to model what it looks like to uh, reach across the aisle, if you will, to be people who... Uh, can be unified even within our differences. That alone right now is going to speak volumes to a culture around us that's not living that way, that is used to just divisions, that is used to just uh, factions and people being separated. And so I think it's a real uh, interesting time for the church right now. In some ways, it's it's a wide open door that's easy to get through, but also really difficult. So I'd encourage you to go Google 60 Minutes, Bridging America's Political Divide with Conversations, One Small Step, at a time, something really fascinating that I think could go a long way uh, to bridging the divides that many of us feel. Well, coming up next, I uh, want to talk about grief and hardship. How do we uh, navigate it as Christ followers? How do we not uh, give up on our faith in the midst of it? We're going to have that hard conversation next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Friday afternoon. You and I are both pastors. And so one of the things that we have this, that's hard, but also a real blessing is helping people process grief, process hardship. I've often said one of the greatest uh, honors as a pastor is to walk alongside someone, to do a funeral, to be there for somebody. Uh, and, and I wanted to just have a conversation about how do we do this? There might be people out there listening right now uh, who are going through a struggle, but also who are just going through grief. Maybe they've lost a loved one. Maybe they've lost health, whatever else uh, it might be. And so before talking about it kind of on a pastoral theological thing, you shared earlier, Steve, that y- I think your pre-Christian life was really marked by grief, a uh, lot of loss of family members. Um, before you were a Christian, how did you even begin to deal with grief? Yeah, you know, I, I think that I witnessed kind of like what the picture of what loss can do to a family, um, what it can cause in, in people. And I think in the process of that, like it just grew my sense of of compassion for people who are going through stuff. And, you know, I I would say I was very young, you know, when those things happened. And so when my mother passed away in 2019, um, it was this uh, new experience of of uh, heartache and just uh, soul level disruption that uh I, I I still had the opportunity to like realize like this is what people feel like whoa, yeah. and I think you know personally I think as a pastor it's just so so helpful to to navigate that emotion and that feeling as you shepherd other people, but also I think that being a a person who has has navigated grief, um, it it just it gives you some insight and some wisdom for. Um, for shepherding that I just didn't have. And and I think that if, if you navigate it he- as a healthy person, like in a healthy way, like it, there's just so much fruit that can come from it. And I, I think I have some clarity at least on how to navigate grief in a, a way that's healthy. Yeah. So what are, what was the answer for you? I, I'm always, so 2019, right? You're in the ministry. Uh, your mother passes away. Uh, even as a pastor, there has to be a point where you wrestle with your your faith in that moment. Where's God in this? What's going on? How, how did you process that? And then how can other people maybe who are listening uh, not see their times of grief as a time where God has abandoned them and, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I think in, in some ways, like when my mom passed away, it was so far from what I had expected and it was such a surprise that I had anger towards God. Mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. uh disappointment towards God. And yet at the same time, you know, as time went on, I I still believe that God had showed me grace in the process of being mm-hmm. with my mom. Little glimpses of of nurses who were followers of Jesus who were incredibly great to her. Um and I think when I thought about the possibility of where she is um, in light of what her life experience might've been like, um, 
if her faith was in Christ, then she was healed. Uh, she is healed. Um, and she's in the presence of God. And as, mm-hmm. as followers of Jesus, I had to put my theology on, on play. Um, and, and not just act like I ascribe to these things, but I, I, you know, at a soul level, I ascribe to these things. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think also like more so than any other world religion or philosophy or ideology, one of the things that helps me and has helped me, uh, in the process of this is that Jesus Christ, the, the God that I worship was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Mm-hmm. And so he identifies with those, those deep, pains and those uh being sideswiped by by grief and and by pain and so that that comforted me a lot and you know we talked uh, a couple of days ago about the the story of the storm in matthew 7 i i just felt like i was still standing um you know paul says in philippians chapter 3 that that he counts everything as loss that he might gain Christ and be found in him, having not a righteousness uh, of my own through the law, but that which comes by faith. And, you know, Horatio Spafford sang that song, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. That's right. And I just, I just, you know, when my mom passed, there was grief, there was pain, there there was all of that. I needed to go to the therapist. I, I actually got on, on anxiety medication after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there was something deep in the foundation of my, my heart that said, I'm okay. Um, mm. not, not in the sense like I, I've got it all together, but like the deepest longing of my soul has been met. So it is well with my soul. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, those are, those are things and, and you process and go back. I was in the shower the other day and, and was like, um, you know, what if we'd have done this different or what if that would have happened mm. or man, yeah, she would have yeah. been really disappointed if she was in COVID and having to be in a skilled nursing facility. Um, you know, all of those kinds of things, or I, I have to deal with the thought that she'll never meet my son. Yeah. Um, all of, all of those kinds of things come back around. Um, and yet God's, God's hand has been faithful, uh, to me. I, I always thought of my mom and the story of Naomi and Ruth in the book of Ruth. And, um, I think it's in the second chapter where, uh, Naomi says, uh, the loving kindness of God has not forsaken the living nor the dead after Ruth came uh, back from Boaz's field. And I, I kept, uh, kept that thought for my mom because at the end of the book of Ruth, it says that the women called Naomi uh, blessed. And, uh, and then obviously through the lineage of the, the child that came to, to Naomi and, and Ruth and Boaz uh, is the lineage of Jesus Christ. And, I, I kept thinking that I want the storyline of my mom's life that has been so hard early on, just like Naomi's was to be that of Naomi's in the fourth chapter. Um, and yet I, I just really gained a sense that God's loving kindness had not forsaken me mm-hmm. um, in the, in the process of, 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 of the grief. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing that, man, because uh, I, it's one thing for us as pastors to say, this is how you process grief. This is how you get through the storms. This is how, and that's important. It's important for us to open up God's word. It's important for us to walk with people, but to say, this is how uh, I struggled. And this is how I did it. I think humanizes, not just you as a pastor, but helps people go, okay, he's speaking from, um, (laughs) for lack of a better word, some expertise here, speaking from some experience. And uh, those of you out there, I, I pray that those words help you because 
Uh, life is hard and God promises to be present. And we know that Jesus is victorious, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. And so my prayer for you is that those words that Steve so eloquently shared with us are uh, are helpful for you and are, are able to guide you uh, to God through the storm uh, as you struggle. Well, coming up next, uh, as we start to close out this Friday, what's the importance uh, of a church that looks multi-ethnic and multicultural? We're going to talk to Steve about his church. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. Uh, Steve, I was reading an article the other day about a fascinating church in Milwaukee uh, that for years, not just recently, but for years, has really had a, a vibrant ministry to the refugees in their town, uh, kind of a very welcoming. That's kind of what they are known for. And it got me thinking about churches, and I knew you were going to be on today. Uh, and and you describe your church in a very unique way. How is it that you always describe Renewal Church of Chicago? Yeah, I, I describe it as a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, disciple-making church. Yep. And so I'd love to kind of unpack that a, a bunch. And I'd love to start by unpacking and maybe spend the whole time talking about the multi-ethnic portion. Uh, because you guys believe in that enough to put it in the description of your church. Yes. Like this is a value of your church. It is a... Uh, it is something that differentiates your church from uh, many other churches. So let's start here. Define what you guys mean by multi. I think that might seem like an obvious question, uh, obvious thing, but do it anyway. Define what you mean by multi-ethnic and why is that a priority of your church? Yeah, I, I think that when you look at uh, Ephesians chapter two and, and the dividing wall of hostility being torn down between us and God, and God bringing together uh, enemies um, to be a part of the community of faith. And even, you know, if you were to look at John 4 and the story of Jesus going to the well, to the woman at the well and, and having that conversation, uh, it, and, and even the, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? All little stories are crossing cultural and ethnic lines. And um, so in, in a way that subverts what's the normal way to do things in Jesus's, uh, you know, first century culture. And so the, one of the ways, you know, getting back to the first part of the question is that it, it's a space made up not just of multiple colors of people's skin, um, but it's a space made up of multiple cultures with one, within one community of faith under the banner of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just think that, you know, holistically, we're better by being together. Yeah. Uh, so the $64,000 question is, how have you guys gone about that? What has been, because um, obviously that needs to be a strategic thing, right? This needs to be yeah. like, we're going to try to make this who we are, uh, because that's not necessarily the normal trajectory of any organization, churches included. Uh, and so what does that look like? What has it been like for you guys to try to build a church that reflects that? Well, I, I think it's a lot easier to do that if you start the church that way um, and you're able to create that culture. Sometimes churches can be kind of like a, a, a cruise ship or, you know, some giant ship that has to, you know, it takes a long time for it to turn to a different direction. 
And uh, and so one of the strategic ways that we did that is literally by putting um, multi-ethnic in the vision. So that's strategic, right? Yeah, it's intentional yeah. saying that this is who we are. And if we're not this, then, you know, somebody needs to call us out because it's, it's literally a part of the title of uh, our community of faith. And so, um, you know, we think through uh, how how our worship gathering is uh, put together. We're, it's constantly being tink- tinkered with. Uh, it's constantly being tweaked. Um, we're, we're constantly asking ourselves questions about uh, the worship and the worship, you know, the gathered church singing and what songs we're selecting. And mm. we, we kind of just went ahead and accepted that. Um, Man, if you if you sit through church and you really loved every song that we sang, uh, then we didn't do our job because you're not uncomfortable. <laughs> and I, I think that you know, in many majority settings, when you when you talk about worship and the gathered church singing, oftentimes you know the question is asked: What songs do we sing well? What songs do we really enjoy? And we've kind of just turned that thing up on its head and said. Um, if we sing everything that you like, then we didn't do our job. Yeah. Yeah. What's been the difficulty? Like what's been the struggle? This is uh, I'm sure it's been a process. So what's the pushback you get in uh, where have you kind of laid awake at night and gone? Is this really worth it? Oh man. You know, black people think we're not black enough. Uh, white people think we're too political. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a constant, you, you know, that you're having conversations that you just wouldn't have in a, in a homogenous space. So you're having a pastor, the, the Trump supporter, uh, who doesn't understand, you know, some of the details of, uh, of why we're doing certain things. And, and you having a pastor, the person who, you know, in a homogenous setting, maybe their, their white nationalistic, uh, perspective would have kind of gone unchecked. Um, and yet I, I got to pastor that person and I got to come over and pastor, um, uh, the person who, you know, whose cultural background is, is, uh, completely different. And so it's just like, man, you gotta be nimble on your feet. You gotta be, uh, agile. You gotta be able to, to move and shift all the time. And so I, I think it can be a tiring thing in, in the sense of, like there's there's you're dealing with more. So you're you're putting more fires out. You're um, you're having to shepherd uh, more areas of people's lives. Mm. So uh, you're in the in the city of Chicago. Your church is and uh, I'm out in the suburbs and the suburbs just tend to be more homogenous. Right. In mm-hmm. right where you live. So what would you say to a pastor like myself or others in the suburbs who are going, you know what? That sounds great in the city where there are kind of this melting pot. There are this, uh, but what do I even do? How do I even conceptualize this in a place like the suburbs, which at least appear to be much more homogenous than what you're talking about? Is there some sort of strategy in your mind there? Yeah. I mean, I think that you know, one of the things is I think it's helpful to understand the history of the suburbs. Um, I think it's helpful for you to, 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 do some research around that. Why, why is the area that I live in so homogenous? Why are there so many people that look like me, act like me, vote like me in this particular area? And, and that'll kind of give you at least a foundation to know that there's some biases that you might ascribe to that you're not even aware of. Um, and then I, I think the, the, the next effort uh, that is important 
Brian, I just think that it's important to partner with churches that are different than your, yours. And and so one of the churches that we have, we're a part of Acts 29 Network. Um, we've connected with a church in Lombard. And, and from time to time, uh, Pastor Derek or myself will go out there and uh, and or we'll invite them to our um, worship gathering um, in the city. Um, or if we're doing an evening event, stuff like that. I think it's just, it's good for pastors to have cross-pollinating relationships. And it's so hard because a lot of uh, majority culture, I shouldn't say majority culture, a lot of pastors struggle with friendships. So yeah, yeah, yeah. therefore, like you add on the layer of culture and ethnicity to friendship um, and it makes it even more difficult. But I think it's really, really helpful for pastors who are in homogenous spaces to have deep heart level friendships with people who are not. That's um, a good word. It just yeah. gives you a scope. It gives you're, you're able. You're not in the bubble anymore. You know what I mean. It, it gives you a better perspective on the the entirety of the lay of the land, um, and and because uh, in 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 some shape, way, or form, there's 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 an echo chamber that you're in that you might not even be aware of, mm-hmm. um, if you're surrounded by all types of people who are who look like you. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing that I'll that I'll say is. Yeah. What opportunities do you have? Um, you were talking about the particular article speaking of uh, refugee ministry, um, whatever cross-cultural opportunities that you have, whether it's serving a school in your neighborhood or serving a school that's just on in the other neighborhood that is has some diversity or um, or even like when you when you think of people who are the marginalized, like your your church by nature needs to be serving some people who are different than, uh, than you and just finding the opportunities to be able to do that. Oh, that's a good word, man. I, I knew that you'd be able to challenge us on that. And the church should look different and there's different opportunities, different struggles in different places. Uh, but, but the calling appears to, you know, it, it's the same. And so, uh, wrestling with that, love what the good work you guys are doing at your church, uh, kind of, you know, uh, blazing a trail in some ways, helping people see what that looks like coming up next. We're going to end the week asking this, uh, what does it mean for us to stop eating spiritual candy? Going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Steve is sitting in for Aubrey today. We try to end every show with just some encouragement or some challenge. And I was thinking of that as I was reading this article. It's a couple years old now, but over at the Gospel Coalition, it's just entitled this, Stop Eating Spiritual Candy. And and the background of this, this author says that, you know what, we all have a sweet tooth and we all love to eat uh, sweets, or most of us do, uh, eat desserts or whatever. And they are wonderful but they don't do very much for us, right? They don't do very much to keep us healthy, uh, to keep us sustained and keep us going. And her point is that unfortunately, a lot of us spend our spiritual lives consuming spiritual candy. And so she talks about Pinterest worthy quotes and just kind of, uh, you know, these kind of plithy sayings or books that, you know, might be more self help and not really, uh, grounded in any sort of theology or any kinds of things. She says, in times of feeling stretched too thin, I've reached for sweets, uh, delectable little reminders of how capable I am, how invincible I am, how much I can accomplish. Uh, But she says, we need to kind of focus on the truth and, and have some things that are, to use biblical terms, spiritual meat 
things that we are consuming, things that are going to sustain, things that are going to keep us going. And so, uh, Steve, as we think about that biblical imagery of, of, uh, of spiritual meat, what, what, how would you describe that? How would you preach on that? What comes to mind that we would define as meat? Oh man, I, I've, uh, I think I even preached that passage, uh, recently, um, in our series on Hebrews. But, um, one of the things that I think about as like central to spiritual meat, um, is what I think the Bible is all about. And I think, uh, in terms of like the new Testament and we talked about the gospel and what that call is to, and and that call is to union with Christ. Um, Mm. and so I think that our union with Christ is, um, the centerpiece from, uh, how we can understand rightly the pursuit of holiness, the, the understand rightly, uh, our sanctification and the process of sanctification. And uh, I think that it's something that causes us to, to go back to what is the foundation of my faith to remind ourselves that the gospel is not something that we, uh, that we, uh, sort of respond to right when we become followers of Jesus, but it's something that we go back to over and over and over again as the means through which we grow as well. And so I just personally, I really, really love Rankin Wilborn's, uh, Union with Christ. And the reason, the reason why I say all of this stuff about union with Christ, Brian, is because what you see over and over again in the scriptures is, uh, prepositions that say in Christ or through Christ or for Christ, uh, um, all over the place. Right. And it's, it's really shorthand for union with Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to us to understand what that means, what that is, um, that we're not acceptable to God on the basis of the things that we do, but we're acceptable to God because of the grace of God provided through Jesus. And it's not, even when I stand in front of Jesus and I pray in Jesus name, I'm praying in Jesus name uh, because he's the one that gives me access to the throne of grace Mm. because I'm in him and he's in me. And so I think foundationally to understand the meat of scripture and the meat of our spiritual lives, we we have to understand union with Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love this food imagery. You got the sweets, you got the meat. Jesus also refers to himself as the bread of life Mm. uh, that sustains uh, and, and when I think of the meat, I think of the truths, uh, and she talks about this in this article, the rich truths of God's word, uh, truths about God's character, right? If everything I'm ever thinking about or talking about or reading or whatever in my faith only has to do with me, I'm this, I'm this, then we're missing the point. It's totally. this idea of, of who is God? Like, who is he? Uh, and, and we can rest in that and, and, and feed on that and, and be sustained by that. And so uh, obviously, Steve, the, the number one answer to what I'm going to ask you is the Bible. Like when I ask, what do we turn to for for sustenance? What, where do we find this meat? But do you have any resources, books you've read, podcasts you listen to or something that you, when we describe meat, you're like, yeah, that, that I'd like to point people towards mm. that. Mm. Yeah, just, you know, I can't, I can't say enough. Uh, Rankin Wilborn's book Union with Christ is a, a phenomenal resource even to the uh, regular everyday churchgoer. Uh, it's not an academic book. Um, it's really accessible. Um, I think that in terms of like spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines, um, anything um, John Mark Comer has written mm-hmm. is, is really, really helpful. Um, and, and, and even when, when I think about uh, like the heart aspects of my my 
emotional life and uh, spiritual life, I think of anything written by Henry Nouwen is mm. uh, has been really, really helpful to go uh, to go deep uh, and, and apply some of the things that um, that uh, are the meat of, of scripture. And uh, I love a book called the, the Whole Christ written by Sinclair Ferguson. It is is it is a little dense, um, <laughs> but I think it is really, really helpful um, in understanding the just the vastness of the supreme work uh, that we have been given through the person and work of Jesus. So those are some resources that I, I really love. Yeah, Amy Gannett is the writer of this article. And near the end of it, she says this. I think this is helpful as we close this out and think about what are who's the who am I going to be in this new year? What are we? What am I striving to do? She says. So let's resolve to feed ourselves from a more sustaining source. Let's stop feeding ourselves spiritual garbage that doesn't sustain. Let's stop telling ourselves we're strong enough and brave enough and good enough to do what we in our human limitations can't do. Let's embrace the reality of who we are and who our God is. We are consistently weak. It's God who must show up and show off. So that's kind of her thing about like, let's be uh, men and women who do this, men and women of the word, but then also the things we're reading, the podcast we're listening to being things where we're being pointed to God as opposed to you're all good, you're fine, you're this, but we're pointed to God, uh, our, the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, uh, we're really glad that you joined us. I said it already, Steve, but I'm really appreciative of you, man. Thanks for spending so much time with us this week. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Brian. Yeah, have a great weekend. And for all of you, we hope that you also have a wonderful weekend. Come join us again on Monday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back on Monday from four until six. For Steve Cobalt, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.